Folks, if you like good old-fashioned true crime mysteries, if you like stories where you feel like you're a detective finding clues, June's Journey is the name of this new game that you can play on your iPhone or your Android. You are uncovering the mystery of June's sister's murder. It's this well-to-do family in the 1920s living in a great Gatsby-like mansion. Each scene uncovers new aspects of the story. Some parts are in New York, some parts are in Paris. There's all kinds of objects you're finding and trying to assess whether they're meaningful or not. You collect information, filling out your own photo album, and you're keeping track of all the characters. There's romance, there's scandalous family secrets. It feels like a really fun play or movie. And I've only made it through like five scenes, but I am told you could crack the case. All you need is an internet connection and downloading on iOS or Android. So discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and every Thursday we release these special episodes where we look back at content from our earlier years. Sometimes single stories, sometimes whole episodes. Keep in mind that years ago, people might have worded things differently than they would today. As always, the title of the whole series, Risk, is itself a content warning. This week, an episode that first premiered in May of 2012, it's an episode we call State of Emergency. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and today's episode is a state of emergency. Nothing better. Nothing better for a story than a little old bit of crisis. And we're bringing it to you in high-fidelity stereo or something. We're bringing it to you via some recent technology. (laughs) I could almost swear to it. This is Django Django behind me now. And first up today is one of you guys. Sherry Cleland, she went to the submissions page at our website at risk-show.com. She sent us this pitch. We said, all right, let's do this. So this is Sherry Cleland with a story we call The Choke. 
I awoke to the news that there was a bad accident on the Bay Bridge. Traffic was a nightmare, and I had a lot of work to do, so I made the decision not to go into the city, but to stay in Oakland and work from home for the day. Around mid-afternoon, I was in my living room working on my laptop when, through the floorboards, I heard my downstairs neighbor having some sort of a coughing, choking fit. And I didn't think much of it at first, but it just kept going. And it started to sound like she was having a hard time getting air back into her lungs. It was kind of like a... <coughs> And so after a few minutes of listening to this, it sounded like something was really wrong. So I decided to go knock on her door just to make sure she was okay. No answer. So I knocked again. Sheila, are you okay? Sheila? No answer. Well, well now what do I do? Do I call 911? Do I want to escalate this? So I went back up to my place and I'm pacing around my living room I didn't hear her at all anymore. This voice in the back of my head kept saying, what if she's really in trouble and you're sitting here doing nothing? And I could imagine her boyfriend coming home and she's unconscious and blue and he comes up to tell us the horrible story. And I say, oh yeah, I heard her choking and I just opted to do nothing. And then I dialed 911. This is 911, what's the emergency? And I said, well, here's the thing, I'm not sure if it's an emergency. I heard my neighbor having a coughing, choking fit, and now I can't get her to answer the door. So they asked me some questions and determined it's necessary to send a unit. And I said, okay, well, let me run down again and I'll see if I can get a hold of her. And if I do, I'll cancel. So after going down and yelling and banging a second time, there was still no answer. And at this point, I can now hear the sirens coming down the street. So I go back up out to the sidewalk and I see a fire truck and a cop car pull up with the lights flashing and they get out of their vehicles and they ask me what the situation is and I explain everything and the two police officers tell me to stay upstairs with the five firemen. They ask me her name and then they go downstairs to bang on her door in a very cop-like fashion. Bam, bam, bam! This is the Oakland police! Open the door! Nothing. Bam, bam, bam! Sheila, this is the Oakland Police Department. Open the door immediately. No response whatsoever. So one of the police officers turns around, looks up at us and says, we're gonna kick the door down. Okay. So one officer takes a big step back, kicks the door and it breaks into a bunch of pieces. And I'm just standing at the top of the stairs with the firemen, hoping to God that this woman is okay. And after about five minutes, they come out and I yell down, is she okay? And the officer announces, she's fine. She's been smoking a lot of weed. And at that moment, my eyes went huge. My mouth dropped open and my hands went up to my face like that scene in Home Alone with Macaulay Culkin. And I honestly wasn't sure if I was gonna throw up or pass out because all I could hear inside my head is my inside voice screaming, what have you just done? You just busted your downstairs neighbor. So as I'm standing there shaking and stunned, I turn to the officer and ask, what is gonna happen to her? And he looks at me and says, don't worry about it. This is Oaksterdam. I couldn't believe it. I was so relieved that not only do I live in a city that happens to have a high tolerance for cannabis consumption, but that in my attempt to help this woman, that I did not get her hauled off and arrested instead. 
So after I had a minute to catch my breath, I said, you know what, let me go down and talk to her. And the officer said, I'm going to escort you down. So he takes me down and he says, Miss, your upstairs neighbor would like a word with you. And all I hear from inside is, I don't want to talk to her. So although it was mortifying for both of us, and the big picture we're both fine, and my wish is that someday she and I will be able to look back at this and laugh. This is Risk. You are hearing our good friend Teddy Pressburg behind me now. I am super excited about this next story for two reasons. First, I am a huge fan of Tim and Eric. Uh, I think that they have achieved a level of insanity in their work that is just inspiring. And the second thing I'm so excited about is that Tim was just so game to tell a serious story seriously. And what an astounding experience he lived through. So this was recorded at the Nerd Melt Theater in Los Angeles, where we do our show each month. It's Tim Heidecker with a story we call Sudden Blood. Hello. Turn the music off, please. Um, I'm not going to tell a funny story, but I am a funny person, so it's, uh, um, you're probably going to laugh. So that's good news. Um, it happened uh, in uh, March of 2006. I was living in Los Angeles in uh, Los Feliz. I was living in a little bungalow community, and uh, I was asleep. It was around 12.30 at night, and I was awoken from my sleep by the uh, pounding of my uh, iron gate and uh, the voice of my neighbor, an, an older woman, screaming, um, Tim, please help. My son is overdosing. My son is going to die. I don't know what to do. I've called the police. No one's come. I need your help. So um, uh, I get out of bed and put on some sweatpants and a t-shirt and run out of my, uh, my little one-bedroom bungalow and uh, to the right, and I run upstairs to the second floor of, of their apartment. Her son, by the way, is um, uh, 17. He's about six foot three um, in community college, and um, I had known them very well. I'd known the family. I'd known um, the mother and the son and the daughter and was very close with them, and they were very friendly, lovely people that I was happy to have as, as neighbors. Spent uh, some holidays with them, and um, so I was very happy and eager to help and do whatever I can. I was running out of my apartment, running up the stairs, barefoot, thinking to myself, I don't know anything about overdosing, I don't know anything about CPR, I don't know what kind of help I'm going to be, but I'll do whatever I can, and um, expecting to find somebody unconscious, you know, I'm, th I'm thinking to myself, uh, you know, Jimi Hendrix with uh, vomit in his mouth, and um, because I was also there during that um, horrible <laughs> experience. 
Um, and as I'm getting about halfway up the stairs, um, I hear this. <laughs> and I immediately start running back down the stairs. <laughs> um, it was the scariest sound I've ever heard in my life. It was the sound of this uh, young man. I'm gonna start calling him Joe. Uh, that was the sound of Joe, um, but it sounded like a, a lion. It sounded like a beast. And uh, uh, for some reason, my body said, don't go up there that's a bad sound I started uh, I started running the other direction um, down the sort of middle path of the uh, of the bungalow and uh, I, I immediately sensed and felt and I, I must have seen uh, him coming right down the stairs uh, after me and uh, and he had a knife in his hand he had a eight-inch kitchen knife and um, so I continued to run and I ran out onto a Talmadge and uh, up onto Fountain, and uh, I ran up to Sunset Boulevard. Uh, the entire time, a literally a madman wielding a kitchen knife, uh, running mere feet behind me. Again, uh, five minutes ago, sound asleep. <laughs> <laughs> I turn onto Sunset, and if you can, uh, you go on Google Maps, type in Tang's Donuts, and you'll be able to see Tang's Donuts, which is where I uh, ran into the Tang's Donuts parking lot. Uh, it's, a, it's a parking lot where a lot of uh, sort of degenerates and hobos and, and kind of weirdos and like weird chess player kind of types <laughs> hang out. And I'm, I'm literally uh, running around like cars, you know, and, and this, this kid's chasing me. And uh, I, for a second, I'm about to run into Tang's Donuts and, and you know, I think if I had run into T Tang's Donuts, I'd be dead because in Tang's Donuts was nobody, except for like a four foot two, you know, 16 year old Korean girl uh, manning the counter who would have been no match for this, uh, this young gentleman. Uh, so I, my brain told me, don't go in there, that's a trap. Um, <laughs> I run across Sunset Boulevard to the McDonald's, which is lit up, uh, and get to the McDonald's door and, and it, they're closed. They're not open past midnight. Um, and I, I kind of had this thought in my head of the scene in, Go in uh, Ghostbusters when uh, Rick Moranis is getting chased by that Sigourney Weaver's beast. Uh, you know, she, that beast, start, you know, basically kills Rick Moranis against this, this window of like the tavern on the green or something. So um, he's again still chasing me. Um, I look to my right, there's a gay bar on the corner called Akbar. And it's Thursday night, there's a tremendous amount of. Uh, I guess you'd call them bears out front. Um, large strapping men, um, smoking cigarettes, bouncers, also a variety of different kinds of men um, out front. And I run into to Akbar um, barefoot and run. I'd been in there once um, with a friend. And... Um, I, uh, I ran immediately uh, into the bar and took a left and went directly behind the bar. I'm screaming. I'm screaming for my life. I'm screaming, help, help. This person's trying to kill me. Um, he comes right in after me. I mean, the whole time he's literally, you know, 10 feet behind me, between 10 and 5 feet behind me. And um, I, I just kind of collapse uh, behind the bar and he comes running in full steam into the bar, into 30, into 30 guys. Uh, three or four of the guys tackle him down to the ground, take, him, take the knife out of his hand, and throw the knife on the ground. At this point, um, for the first time, I feel the warmth 
uh, and uh, wetness of the blood running down my back. Um, I have, to this day, no memory of the actual impact of the knife, which is kind of a fascinating thing to me, that um, I have no, you know, the, the adrenaline running through my, through my veins uh, as I'm being, uh, as I'm running up fountain, uh, I think, prevented any feeling of pain when the actual impact of the knife uh, went into my back twice and, uh, and kept me kind of focused on continuing to run. I mean, has anyone had the dream where they're being chased by a murderer in the middle of the night and you have the feeling that you're running through molasses and you can't move and you're not going to be able to get away? That doesn't happen in real life. You run like a fucking crazy person. <laughs> you run screaming and you, uh, you know, I'm, like I said, I was barefoot and um, running through the middle of the street in the middle of the night to survive, to live. So um, I realized I'm, I'm, I've been, just been stabbed, first time ever being stabbed. <laughs> um, I have the moment of, uh, oh, I'm gonna die in a gay bar, behind the bar. Um, this is gonna be one of those, you know, my parents are gonna have a hard time explaining this story. Um, uh, they, they immediately clear the bar out and I, a, a lovely woman came be behind the bar and um, who was a paramedic student and uh, assisted and gave me some first aid and put some bar towels on my back and really was you know the first line of someone just saying like you're gonna be okay it's not that bad it's gonna be okay um, and as I'm, I'm lying there on the ground like really starting to panic and I, I see these guys walking out and they're all kind of like because mm. by now my shirt's off. And I felt really, uh, you know, I'm not homophobic in any way, but I felt very protective and defensive of my body at this point that I was not some kind of piece of meat that you guys can just look at on your way out. <laughs> this is very troubling. So th there's this, this is the first point when I'm, I'm being taken out um, to the ambulance. I s have this first uh, sudden rush of paranoia and, uh, and fear that the family that I'd grown so close to was planning this, and this was a conspiracy, and that this was all as was supposed to have happened. This was their plan, that I was going to be killed this night, and that the way they were going to do it was to uh, arouse me from my sleep and uh, create this false story. So I become really paranoid and, and upset, and, uh, and my girlfriend, who was, her side of the story is incredible as well, because she was asleep as well, and her side of the story was she sees me run out to help somebody and then sees me run down the stairs being chased by a person with a knife. So she came and met me there and, and we went to the hospital and uh, at, you know, the, the, the adrenaline wears off and the pain comes in and you start feeling the pain of a knife in, in the back. What, what, what kind of pain uh, you can imagine would, would be. I don't know if you've ever cut yourself. Um, <laughs> It's a, it's a bigger version of, uh, of cutting yourself. Um, I remember being in the emergency room and a variety of uh, doctors and, and policemen and par paramedics um, walking back past me, looking at, the, uh, at my wound and going, oh shit, oh shit. That's what I kept hearing. Oh shit, is he gonna, is he gonna be all right? And I'm like, oh, am I like losing blood? I'm like, am I dying? Am I still dying? Like, I know I'm in the hospital, but what if I'm bleeding inside? I don't know. Uh, it really hurts, and it's, 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 it's hurting more and more. Uh, then um, I was given uh, um, this wonderful drug called Dilaudid. Does anybody know what Dilaudid is? It's heroin. 
And it really, really is great. And I recommend, <laughs> if you guys don't have addiction problems, you try it, because it's really wonderful. It's the w greatest feeling I've ever had. I've ever had in my life. <laughs> Was that drug uh, intravenously uh, uh, going through my, my veins. Um, it, it, it started with a little bit of warmth around the nose. <laughs> And then I just felt like, wow, I could just really, uh, I really love all the people around me and I could really just be here for the rest. This is the most comfortable I've ever been. Um, <laughs> so I'm not going to get into any opiates. I think that's a good lesson. Um, so, um, and then a, a kind of the, the, the sister of the brother showed up and was, uh, was, was a really great friend and, and still is a great friend. And we made, we caught eyes and she looked at me as if, you know, as if her brother had killed somebody and, and with the look of, of regret and remorse and guilt that, I, you know, I'd never want to see again and we just both were sobbing and she's, I'm sorry, I don't know what to say. I'm, so, I'm sorry, I don't know what to say. This is clearly, uh, you know, the, the fear and paranoia that this family was, uh, was looking to uh, take me out of the game was, was gone. <laughs> and, uh, and, um, the next few days, um, it kind of came out that, that this kid was, you know, he was smoking marijuana, and which is fine, and I, I have no problem with that. And, uh, but I think there was something else that, got, that started coming into the supply. There was like this, this, these synthetic marijuana, does anybody know what I'm talking about? Does that ring a bell? The PCP kind of stuff, like these, these drugs that don't have names, they just have like letters and numbers, like TH976. And, the, and, and it really makes you psychotic. And, and uh, this kid um, had gone on sort of a bender of this and had completely lost his mind uh, and uh, was, was you know, from what I hear later, was, uh, had a knife and was threatening to cut off his penis. And his mother was freaking out, obviously, and he had the burners on in the, in the kitchen and was threatening to burn the house down and was completely out of his mind. And uh, when he came to, when he became conscious and became sort of aware at the L.A. County Jail after being uh, arrested for the crime of trying to kill me, um, he, he asked, what happened? What am I doing here? What's going on? Why am I in jail? Um, which is way scarier than what happened to me, in my opinion, because I knew what was going on and I could, I could place what was happening in some kind of context and understand it and understand why it was happening. He, he couldn't do that. He had, no, he, he had done something that he shouldn't have done and it led to a gap in time where he ended up in jail. Um, so he had a lot more work to be done to him than I had to be done to me. And uh, I'm fine. <laughs> I can't walk. I know what you saw come up here was. Uh, it took a lot of drugs and it took a lot of courage, but I usually can't walk. Um, and I'll, I guess I'll close it by showing you my scars, right? <laughs> I'm planning on getting plastic surgery because I can't stand to look at my back. There's probably zits back there, too. took a picture. That was like the biggest violation of trust I've ever had. <laughs> Delete it, would you? Could you imagine? Anyways, thank you for having me. Uh, 
I hope you learned something. It's a true story. song called Credible Threats by the 1AM Radio. Next up, we're going to hear uh, two radio stories from folks who have taken our classes at thestorystudio.org. First is a fascinating, lovely woman named Katie Peabody. Here she is with a story we call Side Effects. My story takes place about 25 years ago. At the time, I had been carrying around feelings of sadness and hopelessness um, every day, all day, for as long as I could remember. And it affected pretty much everything in my life. It affected my job, where I just kind of droned away in my cubicle working on assignments without interacting with anyone there. I was lucky enough, I was in a relationship with a guy named Larry, who was, I think, the funnest guy on earth. I lived in terror that he would wake up one day and realize that he had hooked up with the biggest wet blanket on the planet and leave me. And just in general, I didn't enjoy life. I didn't feel joy or pleasure from anything. Um, And I desperately, desperately wanted to fix myself. Um, I felt like I was in a constant battle with the beast that was my mind. I was seeing one in a long line of therapists that I'd seen, and the one that I was seeing at the time, I was getting ready to to quit therapy with him too. And he might have known that because in what would be our last session together, he told me about a, a clinical trial that was happening at Columbia University for a drug, a new depression drug, that everybody was very excited about. It was supposed to be like the next Zoloft or something. And he asked me if I would be interested in getting into the program. So I was very interested. This was, you know, hope for me. And it it seemed easy enough and free, too. So I went up to Columbia. They did a couple of rounds of uh, blood work on me, and they interviewed me extensively, and they let me into the program. They uh, assigned me to my therapist up there, who was named Dr. Edelman. Dr. Edelman was not like any therapist I'd ever worked with before. He was more of a research guy with a background in chemistry, Nice enough man, uh, but he talked a, a little bit like a robot. And during my first session with him, he explained to me, the program will run for six weeks. Once a week, every week, you will come up to Columbia and give blood and be interviewed by me. I will also ask you 
to keep a journal. Some people in the program will be taking the actual drug. Some people will be taking a placebo. You may be taking the actual drug. You may be taking a placebo. You will not know until the program is complete. Dr. Edelman picked up a vial of pills from his desk and explained, "This is a week's supply. You are to take one every day with breakfast." I reach for the pills. He pulls them back and says, "There is one side effect that you need to be made aware of. When combined with chocolate, the drug has been known to cause blindness in some subjects. While the effect has been shown to be temporary." In most cases, to be on the safe side, you should avoid chocolate throughout the study and for two weeks after. That means no chocolate candy, no chocolate cake, no chocolate ice cream, no chocolate. Do you understand? I told him that I did, and I left with the pills and a feeling of excitement. I was a little bummed about the placebo thing, but I was pretty sure that I would be able to tell the difference between the real drug and a sugar pill、uh, right away. A week into the program, I was feeling great. I was feeling fantastic. Even the sadness, the hopelessness、um, that had been with me forever had just lifted. The negativity that I brought to every situation in life. Was just gone. It was like I was feeling something that bordered on happiness, and it, it just got better and better as the days went on. I was walking into work instead of my usual dragging myself in with my head down, lost in thought. I was greeting people. I was looking people in the eye and striking up conversations and making jokes. And I stopped hiding out in my cubicle anymore. I was going into other people's cubicles and talking to them about. What I was working on and what they were working on, I was going to the offices and finding out if there were any other assignments. And I started meeting people for、uh, drinks after work, and it totally changed the way I felt about my job. It went from being a grind to being something that I really looked forward to. And I did start getting better assignments. My relationship with Larry got better.、Um, instead of just shutting him down and saying no、um, to some of his spontaneous suggestions, I, I started saying yes. And I remember one week he wanted to go to Coney Island to ride the cyclone, and I, I would always have said no, and I did had said no in the past, but I said yes, and I went, and we had a great time, and I started doing that more with him, and it it was it was great for our relationship. We started to be more in sync, so my whole life had opened up, and clearly I was taking the real drug, and that that was kind of the icing on the cake. That was important to me. About four weeks into the trials, Larry and I were at home in our apartment. We lived near the seaport in a little studio apartment with a sleeping loft. And Larry went out to get the papers. And when he came back, he had one of his favorite breakfasts, which is Entenmann's chocolate donuts. Now, I love Entenmann's chocolate donuts, and I pretty much love everything about them. I love the little click sound that my teeth make when I pierce the chocolate shell on the donut. It's kind of like biting into the the chocolate bonnet on a soft serve ice cream, 
But with the donut, it's really only what's outside that counts because the cakey part inside is so whipped with air that there's almost nothing there. And I think the Entenmann's people just put it there so they could call that a donut when what it actually is is just chocolate for breakfast. And of course, these donuts were very special because if I had the courage, they had the potential to tell me whether or not I was taking the real drug or not. There was a big part of me that didn't want to know. Unfortunately, there was a bigger part of me that had to know. So I reached for one of those donuts and I took a bite and I took another bite and I took another bite and then I finished the donut. And then I just sat there, and I think I sat there like that waiting for about a half hour when things started to go dark, and then darker, and then I was completely blind. I told Larry as nonchalantly as I could. He knew about the side effect I told him in the very beginning, and I asked him to please help me climb the ladder to our sleeping loft so that I could wait this thing out lying down. I, I had to believe that it was temporary. And I lay there in my bed, and I could feel his eyes on me, and I could smell his doubt, too. And he said to me, so, you can't see anything. And I said, I can't see anything. And he said, how many fingers am I holding up? And I said, Larry, it's not funny. I'm totally fucking blind. And he said, then let's totally fucking go to the hospital. And I, I said, no. I said, I just want to wait it out. I, I, it's got to be temporary. Let's just wait a little. So he went back down the ladder to eat some more donuts. And I lay there in the bed. And I just started freaking out in my mind. And the voice in my head was just yelling, I'm blind. I'm blind. I may never see anything ever again. I may never see Larry's goofy face again. I may never people watch in Union Square again. I may never see another movie. How am I going to shop? And what difference will it make? I won't even know what I look like. What about my job? How's that going to work? And what about my relationship? Is Larry going to want to be with someone? He has to walk like a dog? Dog. I'm going to have to get a guide dog. And that's not good. This is a no-pets building. God Damn it, why did I eat that donut? If I thought I was depressed before, what's it going to be like now that I have something to be depressed about? And I just started crying, and I could feel the tears spilling out of my blind eyes. And then I fell asleep, and I guess I was asleep for two hours or so. And when I woke up, I opened my eyes, and I could see. I could see everything. I was really angry with myself for eating the donut and taking that risk, but more than that, I was really happy that I was taking the real drug. Two weeks later, I went up to Columbia for the last time, and I handed in my notebook to Dr. Edelman, and he held out his hand to me, and as we shook hands, he said, thank you for participating in our program. It has been a pleasure working with you. I turned to go. And as I was walking away, he called after me, Don't you want to know what you were taking? Of course I knew what I was taking, but I turned around and I said, Sure. And he said, The placebo. You were taking the placebo. 
and I left there in a daze. I couldn't believe it. The drug hadn't made me blind at all. I had made me blind. Just like I had made myself upbeat and positive and cheerful, just like I had turned my life around. It was all in my head. I had done it without any help from anyone. And it just occurred to me, my mind is fucking powerful. I hope it has my back, but what do I know? I moved to New York about seven years ago um, and uh, I couldn't believe how fabulous it was here. And when I moved here, I fell in with uh, a bunch of people who liked to uh, party as much as I did. I developed a mild to moderate cocaine habit, I would say, (laughs) during that time. Uh, Drank an awful lot. Was having a great time. And uh, the only problem, uh, well, (laughs) the only problem as far as I could see it with this lifestyle was I was having trouble finding a, a boyfriend. And um, I remember being in the toilets of a club on the Lower East Side with a friend of mine doing lines off of a filthy toilet, chopping up these lines of cocaine, snorting them and being like, yeah, I mean, I just can't, I don't know why I'm having so much trouble finding a man. And her being like, yeah, I mean, I can't imagine either. You're so cool and you're so awesome. We were like, yeah, we're great, we're awesome. That was pretty much the lay of the land when the story begins. Before this, I had also, um, I'd broken my ankle a few uh, weeks beforehand. So I had an ankle in a cast and I was hobbling up First Avenue to go to this pub to meet these friends of mine. And so I got there and uh, walked in and uh, they were sitting with this gorgeous um, Nigerian doctor. So I did my best to sort of sashay in sexily (laughs) on crutches with a cast, which isn't easy to do. But apparently I managed to do it because we got on like a house on fire. Um, One thing led to another and he came back to my house. And uh, it turned out that he was leaving in um, a month to move to L.A. So he was packing up all his stuff and leaving. But it was great. It really meant that we could have this really lighthearted fling and there was sort of no uh, immediate consequences. The month, you know, came to an end. And so I had invited um, him to come to a show that I was going to. And to my surprise, he turned up. And I was so thrilled. It was like two days before he was going to leave. And I bought him champagne 
to wish him well on his trip and we were having this great time. And then I went uh, back to his place and I hadn't actually stayed at his place before. He'd always come to stay at my place. So um, we weren't really paying attention. We were both a little bit drunk and we were making out in the elevator and making out in the hallway and we got into his place and I remember kind of saying hi to his roommates and then going to bed. And uh, just before I fell asleep, um, I remember really just thinking, I really, really need to go to, I really need to pee, I really need to go to the bathroom, but I just, um, I couldn't, I can't be bothered to get up, I was exhausted. And then I fell asleep. And I had this dream that I was trying to get to the bathroom and I was going through all of these hallways and pushing all these really big metal doors and I couldn't get through and I felt really trapped and I was really, really frustrated. And then I woke up and I was pushing and shoving a big metal door and I looked around me and I had no idea where I was. There was, I was in a stairwell and I was completely naked and I had absolutely no idea how I got there. And waking up from sleepwalking, it, it takes a few seconds, but what feels like a much longer time, I think, for your consciousness to fully realize that you're not dreaming anymore and your logical mind is trying to wrap itself around what's happening. And I was just stood there naked in this stairwell. Just, just, just my mind was melting, basically. So the first thing I did when I sort of came to was to turn around, throw open the door and run to where I assumed his apartment was. And I was just twisting the handle and pushing against this door when I looked up and looked around and there were a bunch of other doors that looked exactly the same. And I had no idea which door was his door. I couldn't swear to it. And so... I ran straight back into the stairwell and I really, really, really needed to go to the bathroom at this point. And I just thought, well, the first thing, I have, before I can think straight, I just have to pee, I have to pee. And I just thought, well, I don't want to pee on anybody's <laughs> floor, on the floor where people live. So I'll go down and pee on the ground floor by the lobby. I don't know why I thought that was a good idea, but I did. So I ran downstairs completely naked and I leaned in the corner... <laughs> Oh, God. And I think this, I have to say, I think I could safely say is the lowest point of my life so far. I hope I never sink any lower than this. I had one arm on the door trying to keep it shut. So if anybody wanted to come in, they wouldn't be able to. Another on the wall to balance myself. And I was hunkered down. And um, I peed at the bottom of the stairwell. And anyone, any ladies who've been camping can tell you that you have to look for a uh, sloped ground if you want to pee and not to pee all over yourself when you're camping and um obviously that that wasn't the case in the stairwell so I was peeing all over my feet completely naked in the stairwell and I don't talk to God very often but I I did pray at that point and was just sobbing looking up I was like a little animal I was like a little vulnerable animal out in the woods just looking up the stairwell saying please god please 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 I swear I swear I'll be good I'll never do any cocaine again just don't let anybody come down the stairs please 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 so I finished peeing uh ran back upstairs and I had actually funny enough just spoken 
to a friend of mine about a time he got locked out of a hotel room naked. And he said, look, the, the one thing you have to remember, if anyone, if anyone catches you naked, you don't want them to catch you standing still. So just keep moving. Keep moving. And that was the only thing I could think of. So I just, I just moved. I just went running all over this stairwell in the middle of the night. It must have been about three or four in the morning. Um, I had just got my cast off, so my leg was all gimpy and weird. I was limping up and down the stairwell naked. And um, I sat down. I had a good cry. And then I remember just thinking, you have to pull yourself together. You can't be, you cannot be naked in the stairwell when people start getting up and going to work. You have to find a solution. Pull yourself together. So I did. And I thought, well, okay, I'm going to try every single door in this building because one of them has to, one of them has to be his apartment. And maybe it's not the kind of door that locks behind you. Um, on my travels around, though, I had heard a bunch of noise coming from one of the rooms on the sixth floor. So after trying everything I could think of, I finally thought, well, I have to go. I have to knock on the door of this party. And I went up to the door. I pumped myself up. I think I tried about three times before I finally rang the bell. And then I ran back into the stairwell. And um, this, I heard this voice around the corner saying, are we making too much noise? You know what's going on? And I was like, no, no, no. You're not making too much noise. Could you, um, could you just come over here? Just come around here. And so this really confused looking girl sort of came around the corner and I just had my head outside of the, the stairwell fucked around the door. And, uh, and I sort of said, well, hi, hi, hi. Um, this is really weird. I don't normally do this. Um, but I just, I feel like I, I just, um, have to tell you, I am, I'm naked. I'm naked. I'm in the stairwell. I don't know where I came from and I really need <laughs> some clothes. And that's it. And I won't bother you again. And if you really wouldn't mind. And she, bless her heart, uh, bless her little heart. She just turned around and said, oh, come on in. And she turned around and started walking back into her apartment. And I shouted after her. I was like, oh, could you just, could you just bring me some clothes first? And she said, oh, don't worry, honey. It's just girls and gays. And she just walked into this apartment. And as the door was swinging shut behind her, I took a deep breath and I just ran in after her and dived behind this uh, sofa. <laughs> that was that. There were about, I think, three or four people. It was just a get together. They were all sat on the balcony. I'll never forget this guy's face. He just turned around and looked at me and his jaw dropped open. And um, then I sort of popped up out from behind this sofa and was like, hi, guys hi hi how are you can you just please give me some clothes can you just please she was like oh oh yeah I forgot so she went she threw me a pair of you know tracksuit bottoms and a t-shirt now I have to find out where I came from so I told her she was like well who is this guy and I described him and she was like oh I totally know that dude he lives on the third floor so she takes me downstairs we knock on a bunch of doors nobody answers so finally everybody leaves the party and we have to go to bed so she goes to sleep and uh, I slept on the sofa and she had lent me her Blackberry because I had to get up and go to work. So she lent me her Blackberry. And when it went off in the morning, I had to unlock the phone so that I could switch off the, um, the alarm and I didn't have her password. So I, 
<laughs> I had to go into her room and wake her up. And she sort of turned over in the bed and looked at me like, oh, <laughs> like that totally really happened. And she was like, hey. And I was like, hey, yeah, I'm the naked girl. Thanks so much. Would you mind unlocking your phone? And she did. And she gave it to me. And so I phoned my phone and it rang. And this stranger answered the phone, this voice I didn't recognize. And this guy was like, who are you? Who are you? And I told him my name and he was like, what's your last name? What's your last name? And I told him. And then I heard this rustling and he passes the phone over to this guy that I'd been seeing. And this guy was like, where the hell are you? What the hell is going on? And I was like, oh, you'll never believe it. The funniest thing happened. I woke up in the stairwell. And he was like, look, whatever. I was like, well, what, what, what apartment number are you? And he told me, and uh, we had been looking on the wrong floor. He was on the third floor. So I, you know, said my goodbyes to this lovely lady who just saved me from the stairwell. And uh, I went down into the elevator and uh, the doors opened on the third floor. And there was um, this gentleman I had been seeing, two policemen and two of my best friends in New York, all just stood in front of the elevator. And um, they were all absolutely furious. And it turned out that um, this guy had woken up um, not long after I had left and couldn't find me. All of my clothes were in his apartment and I was nowhere to be found. So the only friend of mine that he knew was my friend Rochelle. So he phoned her and she said, well, you know, you have to call the police. She made him look all over his apartment. And she also (laughs) did say to him, have you looked in your roommate's room? which I still to this day think was a little bit unfair. I may have not had that many morals back in the day, but I certainly would never have done that. Anyway, so um, all's well that ends well. I was saved. I don't do drugs anymore. I would love to say that that was the last time I did any, um, but it took about a year, probably for me to just get over the shock of waking up naked in a stairwell, but it took me about a year to sort of wind down after that. And, um, yeah, I finally found a, a decent man in, in New York. And he has told me since that um, he will tell that story at, at my wedding. And uh, he will never, ever, ever be invited to my wedding. <laughs> yeah, lovely little song called Dizzy by a band called Glass Pear from a nation called Uruguay. Not not true. Last part completely false. I just wanted to say Uruguay. The story we just heard was from a storystudio.org student, Ms. Morgan Bartlett. We call it Nude Descending a Staircase, and the song before that was Modern Medicine by 41st and Home. 
Now, every now and then on the show, we like to feature a story that comes to us from a different storytelling show. And by far, one of the most beloved, one of the most wonderful storytelling shows in the New York City area is The Story Collider. You can find them at storycollider.org. Ben Lilly curates The Story Collider. He's a wonderful storyteller himself. Ben focuses on stories about how science touches our lives. And be sure and check out their free podcast. It's also on iTunes. Anyway, the following story was recorded at the Story Collider show. This is David Gellis, who is a writer for the Financial Times. And he calls this story, Have Fun, Be Safe. Hi, everyone. So I am an only child. And for five critical years in there, about the time I was five to ten, I was raised mostly by my mom. And she was a working mom, which meant she spent most of her time at the office, which meant that for most of my time, I was largely unsupervised. And as a seven-year-old, eight-year-old, nine-year-old, ten-year-old, even then, I knew how to get into trouble. I always told her what I was going to do. So I would say, Mom, you know, it's Monday, I'm going to go play kick the can with my friends until midnight. She would always say, have fun, be safe. On the weekends, I would say, Mom, I'm going to go to the old abandoned bridge in the park and jump into the river with my friends. Have fun, be safe. I would say, Mom, I'm going to go to Mark's house. And Mark was the kid that everyone knew was maybe into drugs a little prematurely, (laughs) played with knives, and maybe had started the fire. Have fun, be safe. You could say she maybe had a bit too much faith in my well-being, as if whatever happened, the natural world was magically going to take care of me. And for the most part, it worked. And then when I was 10, my mom was invited to New Zealand for three weeks. She thought this would be a great opportunity to take me on my first international trip. We'd get to spend some time together. And I said, okay, because while I didn't know exactly where New Zealand was, A 10-year-old would do absolutely anything and go absolutely anywhere to get out of school for three weeks. (laughs) And so we got there. But when we got to Auckland, it was more of the same. She was there for work. And so instead of me kind of shadowing her, seeing what we were going to do for the day, she gave me two pockets full of quarters and dropped me off at the nearest video arcade. (laughs) She asked this sketchy guy at the candy counter to look after me and said, I'll be back in six hours. Have fun. Be safe. So instead of learning about the Maori, I played Mortal Kombat for a week. But then she finally got a free day. And we traveled from Auckland down to the South Island of New Zealand to a small uh, town called Kayakura on the southern coast. And as we're walking around town that day deciding what to do, we see the sign right on the roadside. It says, swim with dolphins. And having been cooped up in an arcade for a week, I thought that sounded like a good idea. So before too long, mom and I are at this little boat shack and we suit up in wetsuits and get our masks and snorkels and some flippers, but no life vests. And then soon we're on a boat with a couple other tourists who are all suited up. And with this captain, this open top boat, we're zooming out into the Pacific, uh, the, the Southern Ocean, excuse me. And now I didn't know anything about dolphins at the time, except that hopefully they weren't in my tuna fish sandwiches. But as we're driving out there, 
the captain starts telling us about the dolphins we're going to encounter. He explains to us that these are dusky dolphins. They're indigenous to the southern coast of New Zealand, and they have a couple unique attributes. They're very acrobatic, he says, so they'll jump all around. They're particularly playful. He explains to us that dolphins see in sonar, and because of that, they kind of have a hierarchy of humans who they like to hang out with. They're less comfortable around grown men. They feel a little threatened. They're a little more comfortable around women, and they tend to like children. So depending on where you are on that spectrum, you might either get a little more or a little less face time with these dolphins. And then he tells us one more thing. He says, this is the last trip of the day because a storm is coming. Don't worry, we'll be fine, but we're gonna do our dives and get back on shore pretty quickly. So finally, a couple miles off coast, we rendezvous with this pod of 100 or so dusky dolphins, and it doesn't look like much from the boat, just a couple fins slicing through the dark water. And he says, all right, get ready, hop in, five minutes for your first dive. And so mom and I jump off the boat, and there we are in the Southern Ocean. And it was a little scary at first. Even though it was relatively calm, you could feel the ocean swaying you back and forth. And you're so far out there that the floor of the ocean is nowhere to be seen. But then finally, we started observing what was around us. And sure enough, there were a handful of dolphins. And I don't know if any of you in the audience have ever swam with dolphins, but it's fucking amazing. These things are everywhere. And they're just zipping by you, and they're real dolphins. And as a 10-year-old, this was miraculous. And there's one, and then the other. And Mom and I are with the other people from the boat. And we just kind of bob there. And maybe we paddle a little this way, paddle a little that way. And I remember I had this little disposable plastic camera and I would put it up to my eye and look through the lens and a whole dolphin head would fill the frame as if it was right up against the window. And after five minutes, finally, Captain called us back on the boat. Back on the boat, heated up with some tea and some hot cocoa, talked about how amazing it was. And then he said, all right, second dive, 10 minutes. Everyone jumps back in the boat, same thing paddling around with a group, just extraordinary. Dolphins everywhere, lovely time. And I'm starting, finally, to feel a little comfortable. It was a little less scary, the second dive. After 10 minutes, back on the boat, warm up with some tea and hot cocoa. And he says, finally, last dive, 15 minutes. He says, 15 minutes, we're back on the boat, we're headed in. Now, my mom at this point says, I'm not gonna go. See, she had had both of her knees replaced already. And the cold was finally starting to get to her. She could feel the weather changing. It just wasn't a good idea. So she said, stay with the group, 15 minutes back on the boat, have fun, be safe. <laughs> I jump in. And this time, I figure, I've been out with these guys for five minutes, 10 minutes. This is just 15 minutes. I'm just gonna let it loose and hang out with these guys. So I start swimming, I start paddling. And dolphins kind of swim over there, and they swim over there. And I'm finally just totally relaxed. I'm just swimming with them. And I'm so comfortable, I don't even have to take my head up. I'm just breathing through my snorkel. And finally, after you know, swimming with them for what I figure has been 15 minutes now, I pop my head above the water, ready to get back on the boat. And there's no boat. The sky had gotten darker. The waves had gotten a bit bigger. And I suddenly realized that the situation was changing very quickly. A wave hit me in the face and I ingested a little salt water and started coughing and panic started to set in pretty quickly. And I start thrashing around looking for the boat 
and it's still nowhere to be found. And I'm kind of turning this way and that, expending med valuable energy. And I realize how cold I am. And I realize that I'm starting to get tired because I'm 10 years old and I've been swimming in the Southern Ocean for 30 minutes now. <laughs> and I also realize this would have been a good time to have that life vest that we didn't have. But still no boat. But then I notice there's still a couple dolphins around. And then something happens. First one dolphin buzzes me. And then another dolphin buzzes me. And then a third and a fourth. And there are suddenly enough around me that I start to at least pause and reassess the situation and try to understand what's going on. Because suddenly there's a handful of them and they're swimming in a circle around me. And they've actually corralled me. And it, it calmed me down enough that my breathing settled down at least. And I was more attuned to what the dolphins were doing than to my own predicament. And then something else happened. First one of these dusky dolphins jumped. And then another jumped. And then a third and a fourth. And as a few of them corralled me, others started to fountain into the air. I didn't know it, but back on the boat, it had been 20 minutes. Everyone else was back. My mom was in an absolute panic because she had let her only son swim into the Southern Ocean with a pod of dolphins and no life chest and no adult supervision as a storm approached from Antarctica. <laughs> the captain, luckily, had a more level head. He handed out binoculars and he told everyone on the boat, find me dolphins. Everyone started looking, scanning the ocean, and finally, someone saw dolphins about 50 yards away, jumping above the waves. They said, over there, captain threw the boat into gear, started motoring in my direction. Before long, I heard the motor approaching. The dolphins scattered and stopped jumping. And I climbed onto the boat and into my mother's arms. And she had probably never squeezed anything so tightly in her life. <laughs> I was finally like, mom, stop, I'm back. And it was the first time while I was out there as a 10-year-old that I really realized I could die, that I realized my fate was not in my own hands, and at that point, the ocean had me. But I think it was also the first time my mom realized just what she had done. She finally got it, that it wasn't nature's job to magically protect me, it was hers. <laughs> And she never really let that go. I'm 32 now, and I probably get 10 texts a day from my mother. Are you okay? I'm at work. And so on. She never got overprotective. And she's always let me do whatever I want to do. But when I tell her, Mom, I'm going to climb a mountain with some friends, or Mom, I'm going to travel through Vietnam for a couple weeks, she still always says the same thing. She says, have fun, hon, but for God's sake, be safe. <laughs> Thank you very much.
that's our show. This is Electric Guest with Waves. Hey, remember that Risk is live on Thursday, May 24th in Los Angeles at the Nerd Melt Theater. We've got Greg Fitzsimmons of Fitz Dog Radio, also Brian Babylon. That same night, May 24th, 2012, we are at The Pit in New York City. We've got Kurt Braunohler and Elna Baker. Come out and see us live. Now, I'm always talking to Risk fans who say, hey, I always hear you talk about how you got two-day workshops and nine-week workshops and four-week workshops. I just feel like I'm too shy. Or maybe I don't have enough crazy stories to tell. Or, you know, I don't have writing or performing experience. It's BS, folks. Everyone is a wealth of experience. Everyone is a wealth of personality. And you you tell stories already. You just practice it with another person. So why not do it with us? We have a wealth of knowledge on the subject, techniques and exercises, and lots of experience training people to master it. And hell, you've heard today on today's episode, if we like one of your stories, we might put it on the show. So get off the fence. I want to get you in on all of this at the Story Studio. Org. Type that into your browser and let's get going. You know what I'm getting at. I mean, today's the day, folks. Take a risk. You're hearing our pal Preddy... Preddy? Preddy Tesberg? I believe I mean Teddy Pressburg. Oh, my George, that's it.